I don't know about... It's, it's probably easier for you. One of the first questions when you're on holidays or when you meet new people is, so what do you do? And uh, I, I always find that slightly awkward, um, being honest. Uh, for a number of reasons. Um, it, it provokes a number of reactions. The first one is, that you don't look like a minister. And, uh, and, and, and I go, what's a minister supposed to look like? And I get that, because we all have a, a stereotype. Um, but, but when you're on holidays or whatever, and you're chatting to people, and sometimes I make stuff up, like I, I'm in marketing or sales or something, just because I don't want to get into it. And it's kind of half true. Um, I, I'm working telling people about Jesus. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, sometimes it provokes reactions. Sometimes it provokes just stunned silence and people sort of back away from you slowly and uncomfortably. And, and especially if you're in a party environment, um, you're really, people don't want to be at the table with the, the, the rev. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> or the other thing it does sometimes, it, it gets you into a real heavy discussion. You know, people start to give you all those questions. All the questions that that uh, nobody can answer, but they want to ask you them. Uh, and, and so uh, when you're out for a nice meal for a night, that's, you, you really don't want that. And so that's why sometimes... But, but it's, it's one of those things that's a hard thing to describe to people. J. John, some of you will have heard of Canon J. John. He's an evangelist in the Church of England. He was once on a flight, and he was, uh, he, got, he was at Heathrow. He got on the plane. A lady sat beside him, a business lady. He asked her what she did, and da-da-da-da. And then she said, well, what, what, what do you do? And uh, he thought for a moment, and he said, well, well I work for a global enterprise. Um, we've got outlets in nearly every country of the world. We've got hospitals, hospices, homeless shelters. We do justice work, reconciliation work. We've got orphanages. We do marriage guidance counselling. Basically, we look after people from birth to death, and we deal in the, behavior, in the area of behavioural alteration. She said, wow, what's it called? He said, it's called the church. And uh, for two thousand years the church has been at the forefront of changing lives and making a difference in every part of the world and we are so aware of the church's failures and faults over the centuries but we also need to realize that in the areas of social justice of breaking slavery of breaking down racial barriers of, of feeding the poor of, of of clothing the naked of 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 uh, placing homeless people in accommodation. There have been no other body, government or organization that have been more proactive than the Church of Jesus Christ. That the Church of Jesus Christ has made more of a difference and cared for more people than any other institution or organization in the world. And I think we need to remember that because the church gets a hard time today. And I understand that in some senses, but we need to remember that the church is also beautiful when it's at its best. And we're going to see that in Acts chapter 2 as we look at what the early church was like. What happened after the day of Pentecost? Last week we looked at Peter's incredible sermon. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to listen to it. Um, because it was, I, fi- I feel like it was fundamental for us as a church. That as Peter preached in that day of Pentecost, he had two core um, things that he communicated. He wanted to teach the Bible and he wanted to teach about Jesus. He didn't get into peripheral issues, side issues. He preached the Bible and he preached Jesus, and that is who we are as a church. We're a church that teaches the Bible, we proclaim Jesus. We don't get caught up under peripheral issues, side issues. We don't go down rabbit trails. We lift up the name of Jesus. And when we lift up the name of Jesus, he draws all people to himself. And we saw that in the day of Pentecost. We finished off last week that after Peter, Peter preaches, 3,000 people get saved. I call that a good sermon. I, I mean, the church goes from 120 to 3,120. And so we're continuing straight on from that passage this morning, verse 42 in Acts chapter 2. And the first word is they devoted, well, the first three words are they devoted themselves. They. Who are they? They are the 3,120 people who are now Christians. They devoted themselves. And so the church is made up of those who have repented of sin and accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and are wanting to follow Jesus. And that should be abundantly clear, except many of us have come from a church background which is full of non-Christians. 
Um, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I am so thankful you're here. You are so welcome. The church should be made up of two groups of people. Those who know Jesus and those who are seeking to know Jesus. But we've had this nominal Christianity, and it started in the 4th century with Constantine the Emperor, but it's come right through in the Church of Ireland and, and in denominations where you were born into a church and you went to a church, and whether you were a Christian or not, you were seemingly a member of a church. You might have been a member on the books of the church, but according to Jesus Christ, you're only a member if you're purchased by his blood and washed and and, and have come to the cross in repentance and faith. There is the visible church that we see. If you go into churches all around us today, you will see people in the church, but then there's the invisible church, and that is made up of the believers, the body of Jesus Christ, and he knows those who are his own. And the problem with that is that we have, in, in many churches, elected people onto vestries and elders who don't even know Jesus. And we wonder why the church is the way it is in many places. When you have people, we, we elect them on because they're good at business, because they're good at finance, because they're upstanding members of the community, because they're counsellors. You know what, if they don't know Jesus Christ, they should never have a place of leadership in the church. And, 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 and I have come from churches where we've elected people because of their, 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 their acumen in the community. You know what? That is not what's going to happen here. And, and, this, and, and thank God that is changing in places. But we do not elect people into leadership positions because they have a position in the community or in business. We elect people and we, we want people in leadership in the church of Jesus Christ because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the foundation. And I shouldn't have to say it, but unfortunately in today's nominal church culture, whatever a nominal Christian is, I don't know. But Jesus knew nothing about it. But that's another that wasn't even in my notes so I better keep going they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer I want to spend a wee bit of time on those first three words a life-giving church is a church that devotes themselves a life-giving church is a church that devotes themselves do you ever wish you could just magic something you know sometimes we'll be doing something, we'll say, I wish I could just magic, you know, like the dishwasher to be full <laughs> instead of having to put in the dishes. Not that I've ever done it. <laughs> yeah, I see. I heard a cough in the front row, chesty cough. Um, I, I discovered what that thing was recently. Um, but uh, I thought we had a dishwasher. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and then I opened this cupboard and there were like plates in it and stuff like that. It was crazy. Um, you know, if we're on a long drive and, and you, you ever just say, I, just, I wish we could just magic ourselves to be there. We were driving to Newcastle yesterday and got stuck in traffic in Castlewell and, and just magic ourselves to be, you know, if you're on a rainy day, you wish you could just magic yourself to be in us in, in Lanzarote or Tenerife or somewhere like that, just in the sun. I just wish I could magic myself to, to, to be somewhere hot and sunny. I, I, as a minister, if I could magic anything, and I, I'm aware of the theological implications of using the word magic so many times in a sermon. Um, don't worry, we're okay, Aaron. Um, Aaron's my, my theological uh, temperature gauge. Um, but uh, I, I would magic every Christian to be in someone who devotes themselves fully to God. If I could magic anything, it would be that every Christian is fully devoted to God because I have spent so much of my time as a minister trying to get people devoted. I've preached about commitment. I've prayed for people to grow. I've visited people who haven't been to church. I've tried to encourage them to come back. I've followed up and followed up and followed up with new Christians trying to ground them in, my, in their faith. And all of that is good, but... The reality is this, that I've come to realize that I cannot devote anyone more than they want to be devoted themselves. I can't devote you and you can't devote me. You're as devoted to Christ as you want to be. I can't force, manipulate or cajole you into being more devoted to Jesus Christ. And I can't force you to be uh, more willing to serve. I can't force you to be more willing to give. It's got to come from inside you. You know why I got saved when I was 
15. And, and, and just God did something inside me that I, I just, I wanted to be at everything. I wanted to serve everywhere. I wanted to tell everyone. You know, I wanted to be at every meeting in church. If they'd have let me into the mother's union that I went to. You know, I, you know a young mom's club. You know, I, I just, I wanted to be at everything because I just was so passionate about the Lord. My Friday nights were spent in Billy Blair's house on the park road in Portadown in Bible studies. I, I, I just, I wanted to serve the Lord. My summers were spent on outreach teams. It just, it has to come from inside you. And every person here this morning, you're responsible for your walk with God because it's so easy to blame other people when you're not where you are. You know, so many people say to me, I used to follow Jesus, but this church hurt me. I used to follow Jesus, but this Christian was nasty to me. I used to follow Jesus, but this happened. And I used to be passionate about God, but I, I wanted to be in the worship team and they told me I couldn't sing. Or I, I wanted to, 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 to lead a ministry and they wouldn't let me do it. Or I fell out with a pastor and now I don't follow Christ. And, and, uh, I, I, and I get all of that and I get that, that, it's, that life isn't perfect. But the simple reality is this, that, that we need to take responsibility. That what you're doing is you're saying, I'm not following Christ because of that. I'm not as close to God as I should be because of that person or what they did or what that happened or, or that church. And the reality is that, that you're responsible for your walk with Christ. I'm not responsible. The person beside you isn't responsible. You're responsible for your walk with Christ. And you are as committed to Christ as you choose to be. Paul Scanlon who is one of my favorite preachers, his daughter Charlotte Gamble, I know some of you will have heard of, um, started a church called Abundant Life in Bradford, now called Life Church. And uh, he, he, he was out for dinner one day. And uh, they were having Sunday lunch in a pub. And, uh, and he got talking to the, the, the guy who owned, the, the, the landlord of the pub. And he said, have you always owned a pub? And, and Paul Scanlon was shocked when the, the landlord of the pub said this. No, actually, I used to be a Baptist pastor. True story. Baptist pastor pub owner. Uh, and, and so Paul Scanlon, being a pastor, was shocked by this and, uh, and said, what happened? Like, why did you leave the ministry to open a bar? Uh, and the pastor, a former pastor, said this. He said he had spent 20 years in soul-destroying ministry that had left him and his wife on prescription medication. He described how for 20 years he had tried to persuade people to get involved, but they refused. He became worn out from the human effort, the huge effort required to convince, persuade and remind and sometimes beg people to do the things which needed to be done in the church. And Paul asked him what he enjoyed about being a pub owner and this was his reply. He said, I love this job because my drinkers are devoted all by themselves. <laughs> he explained he never had to call absent drinkers to come back. He never had to call absent drinkers to assure them that they were missed, nor did he have to inspire them to part with their money. Finally, he said this, my drinkers come early and stay late, but in 20 years of ministry, the church did neither. Now, I want to say that is not applicable to this church. Okay, I want to make that very clear to you. We were boasting on you on Friday night. We were out for dinner with two friends, Rand and Aaron Griffith, and we were boasting that on this church in a, in a good way that you're a church that shows up early and stays late, that when we have a grass-cutting night, there's so many people, there's so little to do, um, that, that, that when there was snow in the car park, that, that people just show up, that you just serve. So I'm not getting at you, okay? But I am saying... That, that, that this isn't the norm <laughs> that this isn't the norm and keep doing what you're doing keep committed you're a church you are deeply committed you're a church that are devoted not just to this church but to Jesus Christ and his kingdom and I just want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing it's coming from within it's a passion of God within you you're devoted to Christ and his church you know when I started ministry in, in Shankill Parish in Lurgan. I, I love Shankill and I love the people there and I loved working there but what was this 12, 13 years ago I was ordained and, uh, and, and we would constantly chase people to, you know like we would actually in staff meetings sit every week and who wasn't there on Sunday and we would make a hit list like, like literally it would be and if they, were there, if they weren't there three Sundays they got a visit like it's like the mafia you know it's like extortion um, but honestly it was like and, and we just we spent our time driving around people trying to get people to come back to church and after a while I just realized this isn't sustainable because they would come back for two weeks and then they would disappear again and three weeks later we'd be at their door again and 
I just realized I can't commit, I can't devote people to church. I can't devote people to serving Jesus. And actually, some people begin to feed off it because they like the attention. I, I, I cannot spend my life driving around trying to convince church people to come to church. And, and, and one day I just said, no way, no more. And some of them I never saw again, and others in their own time came back and were more committed than they've ever been. But when I read the Bible, I'd never see Jesus chasing people. I never see Jesus turning to the disciples and going, guys, yesterday we had 5,000 people, plus women and children, and we fed them, and today there's 12 of us, well, 13 including me. Guys, let's make a list and go and find everybody. Because we like, you know, like, that is not the way. In fact, Jesus had this thing that he kind of, when too many people were following him, he would say something to kind of chase them away. He was like the least seeker-friendly person in many ways. You know, he would say, like, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you're going to have no part of me. And everybody went, okay, he's a cannibal. And, and, and thus, honestly, he would come out with these, unless you deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, you can't be my disciple. That's not seeker-friendly. Jesus made it really hard. He set the bar really high. And sometimes in the church we have lowered the bar so much that you can basically do anything you want and, 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 and be as casual as you want about it all. And, well, just as long as you show up once every six months, you're great. Uh, you know, that is not Jesus. That is not the way. The only people that Jesus said we should seek is the lost. Too many churches are spending their time trying to seek after lazy, uncommitted Christians that we forget the lost. The only people that Jesus has called us to seek are the people that he came to seek. He said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. And that is our mission as his people, to seek and save the lost. Not to seek Christians or nominal churchgoers who are too lazy to get up on a Sunday morning. And, and, and he, he said, you know what, if people walk away from you, he, he told the disciples, what did he say? If they don't welcome you, shake it off. Shake the dust. Keep on moving. Because you know what? There's more lost people out there to be found. There's more people out there who need Jesus. And if these people don't want it, there's plenty of people who do. The mission of the church is not to keep church people content and happy every week. The mission of the church is to seek and to save the lost and to get as many people into heaven and to get as many people out of hell as possible. That is our mission, that is our goal, and that is our purpose as a church. So I want to ask you, what are you most devoted to? They devoted themselves. What are you most devoted to this morning? Wait, I think we're all devoted to many things. I know I am. But what's the most devoted thing you've got? Over the years, I've been devoted to many things. I've been devoted to fitness and gym. I've been devoted to partying. I've been devoted to having a good time. I've been devoted to work. And all of those things are fine. Partying up to a point. Um, but ultimately our devotion is to Jesus Christ and his mission and his cause. When you say Jesus is Lord, that's kind of what you're saying. When you bow the knee to Jesus, you're saying, I'm devoted to you above everything else. And our goal in this church is not to get church members. It's to grow fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ who know him, who love him, who serve him, and who bring him wherever they go. And I can teach and preach my heart out, but I cannot make you more devoted than you want to be. It's up to you to develop habits and spiritual disciplines that move you into maturity as a Christian. And that leads to my next point, which is what did they do to devote themselves or what activities and habits did these first Christians devote themselves to? The first one is this. A life-giving church devotes themselves to God's word. I forgot to start my timer, so I've still got 30 minutes, folks. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll stop when it gets to 15-ish. Um, they devoted themselves to God's word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I heard a story about a minister who dropped by a family and uh, the, the mom was trying to be very holy and she said to the kids, kids, would you go and get the good book that we love so much as a family? 
and the kids went out and came back with the Argus catalogue. <laughs> you know, back here in Acts chapter 2, they didn't have a Bible as we have it. They had the Old Testament scriptures, but they also had the apostles who wrote much of the New Testament. And so when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, they were devoting themselves to the doctrine that would eventually become our New Testament, to the, the teachings of the life of Jesus, to the letters that would be written to churches. They devoted themselves to Scripture. They devoted themselves to knowing more about God, how they could serve God, how they could love God. They were devoted to following Christ and how God wanted them to live. You know, all we need to know about God is contained in the Bible. Everything we need to know about the character and nature of God is in this book. God hasn't left it to figure it out. He hasn't left it to guess, us to guess what he's like or what he wants us to do. This book contains everything we need for life and godliness. And so many people say, well, I like this bit, but I don't like that bit. And I like this bit, but I don't like that bit. And I, 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 you know, the bit about come to me all your heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's a, I like that bit. That's a, that's, a, that's a magnet on the fridge verse, isn't it? You know, the bit about come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross. Not so much on the fridge. And, and we tend to pick and choose, but all scripture is God breathed. We're going to get to that in a second. And we can't pick and choose. This is God's word. And a church which keeps God's word central is a healthy, growing church. A church which puts God... I know we've talked about this in the last few weeks. A church which neglects God's word or picks and chooses which bit. This is not a buffet. You can't pick which bit you like and leave the rest. This is God's inerrant scripture. I believe that every bit of this book is inspired, even the maps at the back. I believe that God speaks through his word and if, if, if we have an, an experience or, or something which doesn't line up with the word of God, we, we, we put it to one side because God's word is our foundation. It's not an ordinary book. It's not like a John Grisham novel or a Harry Potter book. It's the word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed. And that word God-breathed literally today means expired by God. And is useful for teaching, rebuke, and correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is God's word. He breathed on every page. He inspired the authors. Human authors listened to the Holy Spirit and they wrote down what God wanted them to say. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. We need, our hearts are wayward, our hearts can be drawn to the wrong things and we hear the word of God and we read the word of God and it pulls us back into line. It, it, it cuts through some of the crud in our lives and it puts us back into the right way. This is not just ink on a page, it is living, it transforms us, it changes us. And for many Christians, the only exposure they get to the word of God is here on a Sunday or in church wherever they are on a Sunday and they think, well, that'll do me for the week. That's like saying, I had a good Sunday lunch and I'll not eat to the following Sunday again. Very soon you're going to get hungry, starving and malnourished and unhealthy. We need to be a people who feed on the word of God daily. I don't know how you do that, but you need to find it. Maybe you use a Nicky Gumbelap Bible in one year. Maybe you find another way. Maybe you read a chapter a day. We need to be a people who feed on the word of God. We need to be a people who, who, who daily Feed on God's word. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds the mouth of God. Imagine it like food. It is spiritual nourishment. And you think, well, I don't have time. I am so busy. I have so much to do. I, have so, I just don't have time, Craig. You don't know what my schedule's like. It's all right for you. You get paid to pray and read the Bible all week. You know, that's all you. It's all right for you. Let me ask you, do you have time to watch TV? Do you have time to scroll through social media for 22 hours a week? Looking at what other people have eaten for lunch? Instead of getting on Facebook, why don't you get your face in the book? Huh? Might that be more edifying? I'm not saying don't ever go on social media. We're on Facebook. You can look us up. Uh, but you know what? Instead of Facebook, get your face in the book. And 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 get on your knees before God and spend time. This this book, I promise you, I promise you, this book will change your life more than Facebook will. 
Facebook will leave you dissatisfied as you look at what everybody else is doing and realise how miserable your own life is because comparison leads to uh, a sense of, of, of just this, like, I'm, I, what am I doing with my life? This book lifts you up, it elevates you, it feeds you, it nourishes you, uh, and it encourages you. Why not spend more time with your face in his book than your face in Facebook? It will change your life. What else did they devote themselves to? A life-giving church is devoted to prayer. Verse 42 again, they devoted themselves to prayer. This is a praying church. I love this as a praying church. Some of you arrive at 20 past 10 and you're like, where is everybody? Most people are in the prayer room. That's what impressed me from the first moment I walked in and when I met you as a church, uh, what, two, three years ago. I walked into the, the little storeroom in, uh, in, in the rugby club in, in Portadown and I couldn't get in because there were so many of you in that wee boiler room praying. It was pretty uncomfortable, um, like personal space-wise. Um, but but I lo- there was something within me but that went, this is a group of people who understand the power of prayer. P- prayer, I don't know why God did it this way, but God in his sovereignty, and God is sovereign, God in his sovereignty somehow decided to set up the universe that when his people pray, he moves. And when his people don't pray, he doesn't move. And I don't know why he did that. But he says, if my people who are called by my name will pray. And the implication of that is, if my people who are called by my name don't pray, things will be different. When you pray, things change. When you don't pray, things don't change. Somehow, prayer is the channel, it's the conduit that connects earth and heaven. I always think of the story about the man who gets to heaven and you'll have heard it before and there's, he walks into a warehouse and he sees a, a box with his name in it and, and, and he says to Peter, what's that? And, and Peter says, you don't want to know. And he says, no, no, what is it? And Peter says, you don't want to know. And he pulls it down and it's full of blessings and it's full of things as this man would have desired in his life. And he said, why didn't I get it? And he said, because you never asked for it. Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. We are a people of prayer and we realize that prayer connects heaven and earth. Our prayers make a difference. Our prayers change nations. Our prayers change families. Our prayers change communities. If we are going to impact Craig Alvin and Lurgan and Portadown and Moira and Bambridge and further afield, we're going to do it as we are a people on our knees. We're a people of prayer. And last Sunday night, I loved it. We got together and we prayed and it was a bank holiday and there weren't that we, we, we were praying for people with cancer. We were praying for the sick. We were praying for the community. We were praying for the church. We were, and, 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 and I was up here and we were trying to get back into the worship, but people just were praying and pouring their hearts out. And I love that we are a church that knows the power of prayer. When we pray, God moves. And without prayer, this church will never be all that God has created to be. I believe God's blessing is on this church partly because of prayer, the prayers of you, the prayers of the people in this church. God's favor is in this church because we're a people who are prayerful. Because you know what? Prayer shows dependence. Prayer shows that I can't make this without God. And lack of prayer is pride. Pride says I can do it on my own. I don't need God. And you know what also lack of prayer shows? Lack of prayer shows that we're not doing anything that we don't... that. That's beyond what we can do by ourselves. I want to be a church that has such audacious goals, such big plans, such, such God-inspired vision that if we don't pray, it all falls apart. That, 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 that actually, that our, that our vision and, our, and our, our desire to see this community transformed, we realize that on our own, we cannot do it. And our prayer drives us to our knees because we know that he can. Because when we pray, his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm talking about praying individually at home and I'm also talking about corporate prayer together. One of my heroes is Leonard Ravenhill, one of the great saints of old who wrote about prayer. He, he uh, wrote a book called Why Revival Tarries. And he, he said these things. I, I, I come back to this book often. He said, let the fires go out in the boiler room of the church and the place will still look smart and clean. 
but it will be cold. The prayer room is the boiler room of its spiritual life. No man or woman is greater than their prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. The pulpit can be a shop window to display one's talents, but the prayer closet allows no showing off. A sinning man stops praying and a praying man stops sinning. And then he said, how can you pull down the strongholds of Satan if you can't even have the strength to turn off your TV? We need to be and continue to be a praying church. One of my favorite preachers is a guy called Francis Chan. And uh, he wrote a post on, on Facebook or on his website actually recently and he said he was talking about uh, I'll, I'll just read it many of you have heard the story of what happened a year ago when we decided to do a conference here in san francisco in short we're going to have hundreds of people show up in the inner city to pass out thousands of meals to the poor and homeless a few days before the conference the rescue mission staff had a meeting where the leader expressed concern because they had no meat and no money we prayed earnestly Two hours after the meeting, Trader Joe's, the local market, our favourite supermarket in America, called us to tell us that their refrigerators had just shut down and they needed to give us all their meat. Shortly afterwards, truckloads of meat came to our front door. Well, we're having our conference again this Friday. We just had a staff meeting this morning and our kitchen manager expressed concern that we might not have enough food because of the amount of people coming this year. Guess who called half an hour after our meeting? Yep, you guessed it, Trader Joe's. Just had a power outage. Are you kidding me, he says. When we pray, God moves. We are a people of prayer. A life-giving church is devoted to authentic community. A life-giving church is devoted to authentic community. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the fellowship to the breaking of bread. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, verse 46. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This was a church which had unity. And unity is not everybody just being nice. I think that's what we've tried to do in church. If we can just lower everything to the lowest common denominator and be nice to each other, and, 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 and never say anything that might hurt anybody, then we've got unity. Unity is not based on everybody being nice. Unity is, first of all, based on that we're family. We're from the same bloodline, and that's the bloodline of Jesus Christ. That is the basis of our unity. And, 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 and so often in the church, we try to have a false unity. Yeah, I'm going to say this. We try to have, we try to have multi-faith unity where we get the leaders of Islam and all these other, and Hindus and all together, and we say, let's have religious unity. I can't have unity with people. I can be nice to them. I can be friends with them. I can tell them about Jesus. But I can't have unity with them. Unity is based on, on something more than just being nice and sitting around a table together. It's based on a common bond which is found in Jesus Christ. Our unity as a church is not going to be based on sitting around having tea and coffee together. That's really nice. But our ultimate unity is based on Jesus Christ. That we are people who love him. We're his family. We're his church. We're his people. We're his bride. We're his body. That is where unity is found. Not on watering everything down and saying, well, you all kind of follow the one God anyway. That is a load of rubbish. We don't all follow the one God. There is one way, and his name is Jesus. And, and, and that's where we find our unity. We live in a world where people are lonely. You know, people are more individualistic and isolated than ever before. People are getting married later. People are moving to the cities, and they're live buying one-bedroom apartments. Uh, people who... Uh, 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 used to know all their neighbours move house and they realise, you know, it used to be when you were growing up, you kind of knew everyone in your street. Now you might know the person next door. Used to be sometimes, I, I remember growing up, we'd, we'd go out in and out of each other's houses all the time. Now if somebody walks into your house, you call the police. You know, like, like it's just, it's different, isn't it? It's, uh, and so we've got this, people are moving around so much, you could have Five neighbours in three years, you know, people moving in and out, renting and moving on, and, and, and people are lonely and, 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 and they're isolated. And we spend more time in front of screens than we do in front of real people. And, and, and we don't have real friends, we have 
Facebook friends and we don't talk, we, we tweet and we don't interact, we Instagram and, 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 and all of that has left people feeling more isolated and we, we live in a, a culture that is starving for community, starving for friendship, starving for what we call fellowship, starving to belong, starving for family. They don't even realize it because they, they, they've lived without it for so long. But people in our world are starving to belong somewhere. They're starving to be part of something bigger than themselves. You know, we walk around with our earphones in the tramp locker. Becky and I remember we were walking in Lurgan Park one day and a couple came towards us. And she had earphones in and he didn't. And I'm thinking, like, what a couple, you know. It's like, I'll walk with you, but I don't want to talk to you. Like, but we live in this world where we, we isolate ourselves and we try to block ourselves out. And because of that, people are more lonely and disconnected from each other. A while ago in, in, in one of the British newspapers, this was the headline. Country in the grip of an epidemic of loneliness. One, of ten, one in ten people admitted to feeling lonely often and 50% said they felt lonely some of the time. This is a lonely world out there. What did God say to Adam? It's not good for man to be alone. That's not just about finding a wife. That's about the human heart. We were created for connection. We were made to, to relate to other people. And when we don't have those meaningful connections, not fake, false connections, but real connections, our soul is starved because we were... And when, when God says it's not good for man to be alone, I always think to myself, but Adam had you, God. But even God knew that just a relationship with him wasn't enough to satisfy Adam's soul. He needed somebody else. And we were created for community. And we need to be a community that welcomes people into our community. I said it a few weeks ago that people know that they belong here before they they believe and behave, that there's a place for people who are seeking, for people who want to be part of a a community, that they come in here and they find welcome. And again, that's something you're really good at, but I just, I want to keep putting that in front of you. You know, we, we can have everything that money can buy, but if we don't have meaningful relationships, our lives will feel empty. And we need to have authentic community. In a world which is shallow and superficial, where people wear masks all week, the church has got to be a place where we can take down our mask. It's got to be a place where we can, where it's okay not to be okay. It's got to be. People are tired of faking it. People are tired of saying, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Fine. What does fine mean? Fine means my heart is broken normally. Fine means I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills this month. Fine means I, I, I'm lonely and lost. Fine means I've just been dumped and I'm, I don't know what to do. Fine means I, 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 I'm lost in depression. Fine. Fine. We need to be a people who go beyond fine to how we really are. We need to be a people who open our hearts and our lives and our homes and have authentic community and real meaningful relationships and, and, and actually allow people into our lives. I, I, I read something this week, and it, 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 was nothing to do, it wasn't in a Christian book, I don't think. It, you know, when we don't have meaningful community, we will try to find, fill that space that was created for connection with something else. And, and they did an experiment with rats. And they put a single rat on his own in a cage and put cocaine in. I don't know who did this. Don't, wasn't me. All you animal rights lovers. Wasn't me. But they, they were doing this experiment and, and the rat very quickly got hooked on cocaine. After a while they put five other rats in the same cage. And the rat stopped taking cocaine. Why? Because he had other people around. Other rats, not people. Other rats around him. For some of you, rats are people. That's it. Rats will not be in heaven. Um, but, but, but because of the interaction with other like-minded rats, he had no desire for the cocaine anymore. And I got, it just, there was something about that that struck me in a world where there was a TV program, I've got it downloaded, actually, Britain in the 
crisis of cocaine epidemic. And I wonder why. That loneliness and isolation and cocaine epidemic go hand in hand. That people are trying to fill the void in their soul for God and for authentic community with substances. They're trying to find happiness and meaning outside of Christ and the church. A life-giving church, next point. I'm going to have to keep going, we're nearly done. I'm for nine minutes. Um, a life-giving church has a holy reverence for God. A life-giving church has a holy reverence for God. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe. I love the way the King James Version puts it. And fear came upon every soul. The early church had a holy fear of God. When I'm talking about fear of the Lord, I'm not talking about being afraid of God or cowering in a corner and being afraid of of lightning bolts from heaven and, and God's wrath coming down. But I'm talking about a holy reverence. Because one of my greatest concerns in the church today is that we've become too casual about God. We've become too flippant about God. There's a big guy in the sky. You know, he's my best buddy. And I know that we had an extreme, and, and we're 30, 40 years ago, it was all hellfire and brimstone and wrath and, and the guy shouting in the streets. And, and we tried to get away, and we, I thank God we've got away from that because that was not a pain. Like, the, the loud healer on the street with the guy with the sandwich board really probably wasn't winning that many people to Christ. Okay, and we still see those. So we, we wanted to get away from that, the Turner Burn Christianity, but my fear is we've swung the other way, and we've just got a nice wishy-washy effeminate God who doesn't care what you do. I don't want to worship a God like that. We worship a God who is holy, who is majestic, who is powerful, who is almighty, who is king of kings and lord of lords. Yes, he is loving. Yes, he is full of grace. Yes, he is merciful. But he is holy, holy, holy. It is the only thing repeated three times in the Bible. It never says he is love, love, love. Yes, it does say God is love. But it never says he's love, love, love. It never says he's mercy, mercy, mercy. But it does say he's holy, holy, holy. Both in Isaiah and Revelation, Old Testament, New Testament. That the, 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 the thing that separates God from, from humanity more than anything else is his holiness. His holiness is the umbrella under which his justice, his mercy, his wrath, his goodness, his grace all come. But ultimately our God is holy. And the church today has lost a sense of the otherness of God. We've got the intimacy right. We've got the daddy God bit right. We've got the grace bit right but my fear is in getting all of that right we've pushed the holiness of God the character of God the the justice of God to one side and we're left with a God who looks pretty much like ourselves only a little bit bigger God is not like you only a bit bigger God is God and we worship him as God and the early church had a holy reverence of God the presence of God was so tangible in their midst that they knew that at any moment God could do anything I want this church to be a church that when people walk in they don't go that was great music as good as it is that they don't go that was great preaching but that they get a sense of the reverence of the presence of God that they get a sense of God is in the house. There's God in that place because that is something that the world can never replicate or duplicate. The world can do a lot of stuff to entertain us, but when you walk into the presence of God, the holy, awesome, beautiful, tangible presence of God, there is nothing like it anywhere. In the church, they had their intimacy with God, the early church, but they also had this reverence. Look at what it says in Acts 9.31. The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. We have the intimacy of God and we have the otherness of God. We have the imminence of God and the transcendence of God. We have the grace of God and the holiness and the justice of God. They are not exclusive. It is all hand in hand. And some of us need to just get a fresh revelation of who God really is. That he's not like you, just a little bit bigger. Some people say, well, I like to think of God as... Have you ever heard that? I like to think of God as like this, sir. They read something and they go, well, the God I know wouldn't do this. And they'll read, like, how do, how do we get to redefine God? Like, that's like me saying, my wife is six foot six and has long dark hair. You might be like, 
But Craig, she's not. But I like to think of her like that. I don't actually, because I'd be too insecure with the height thing. Um, <laughs> let's just keep it real. Um, but, but I'd say I'm in love with my wife. She's six foot six. And, and you'd go, well, you might be in love with somebody, but it's not your wife. <laughs> People say, I love God, you know. And the way they describe him, you go, well, it's actually nothing to do with the God of the Bible. You might worship some God who looks like you, but you're kind of worshiping yourself in the end then. We worship the God of Scripture, and He is holy, and He is loving, and we worship Him in His reverence and, and His glory, and uh, and with a sense of awe and respect. Really quickly, I'm going to shorten these. A life-given church experience is the supernatural. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. They saw God move in supernatural ways. It was a church that was naturally supernatural. They saw healing. They saw deliverance. They saw people being set free. They saw blind eyes open. They saw lame men walking. They saw deaf ears opening. They, 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 they saw sickness disappear. I long that this would be a, a church where when people come in, they find healing. They find wholeness. They find the supernatural power of God. That Timothy said, you know, they have a form of godliness, but without power. I want godliness with power. I want to experience the power of the Spirit in this place. The church needs to recover a sense of the otherness of God, but also the supernatural power of God. That we are a people who pray for the sick and believe they're going to be healed. We're a people who lay hands on the oppressed and believe they're going to be set free. We're a people who put our hands on blind eyes and we believe they're going to open. And sometimes we lower our expectations because we've been disappointed. Our expectations were here and our experience was here and we tend to go, let's bring our expectations down here, but no, let's keep our expectations up here because if this book says it's available it's available and just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean we don't contend for it and finally a life-giving church is a growing church a life-giving church is a growing church the lord added to their number daily those who were being saved imagine what that was like every day imagine that oh that would be my dream every day Every day we're hearing about people getting saved. Imagine that. Imagine if this church was open every day. Imagine if at lunchtime, half a Rushmere who are on their lunch come down here for a Bible study or an Alpha course. Imagine if every evening people from the local community were in for parenting courses and, and, and discovering Jesus courses and discipleship courses every day. Imagine if every day mums, single mums and their children were in here and they were learning how to be better parents but also learning how to love Jesus. That's a dream. Like, that's a dream, folks. I don't want to just do church. That's not the goal. The goal isn't to fill this building with Christians every day. The goal is to, to, to be empowered and equipped that we would go out there and change the world but also that we would see this community transform. I, I, I just, there's something within me that is so sick of what we've got to, to call normal Christianity. Like, like bums on seats, budgets. Like all that stuff is fine but honestly without the presence of power of God, people getting saved, lives getting transformed. Guys, what's the point? Like, we're just playing church. And so we have got to be a people who see people come to know Christ. Yes, we're seeing the church grow. Yes, we're seeing new people show up. But I want to see people come to know Jesus. I want to see people come to know the Lord. I want to see people come into an encounter with Christ. I want to see people come to, to, to hear and get their, their addiction broken, their marriages restored, their hearts healed. 3,000 people were added to the church. A few chapters later, 5,000 people were added to the church. You know, people say don't talk about numbers. Numbers are people. Jesus talked about the 99 and the 1. And we're not all about numbers. We're about people. Numbers matter because people matter. And when people say, well, I don't really want our church to grow because I won't know everybody then. And what you're really saying is I don't give a rip about lost people. Why there's people out there who don't know Jesus, we need this church to keep growing and other churches to keep growing. And we pray for other churches, we bless other churches. 
But we want to see people come to know Jesus. Because hell is real, folks. That's the bottom line. We don't talk about it much. We prefer to talk about heaven. Um, it's funny, when people die, everybody assumes everybody's in heaven. Don't they? Like, nobody really. Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. And I said last week we need to recover a confidence in the gospel. I think we need to recover a confidence in eternity. People get saying, oh, well, you're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. I think we're too earthly minded to be of much heavenly use these days. And that the people who did the most in this life were the people who are most aware of the next life. Hell is real. And it lasts a long time. And we need to think about when we look at people in work, when we look at people in the streets, when we look at people in our families, we need to actually remember that, that this life is but a mist and a vapour and that eternity goes on forever. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said this, and he said it about the 20th century. But how much more real it is for the 21st. The chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. That's the age we're living in. But God is on the move. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church. We don't build the church. He builds the church. We make disciples. People go, oh, we're going to build the church. You're not going to build the church. Jesus builds his church. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord added. The Lord added, not them, but they discipled them. The Lord saves, we disciple. Do you know where the greatest number of people per capita in the planet is that our people are coming to Christ? Do you know where it is? Iran. Yeah, I was shocked too. Iran. 40 years ago, Iran had a 1,000 Christians. They estimate today, it's hard to tell, as you can imagine, in a country like that. But those who are working in the underground church in Iran say there's somewhere close to a million born-again Christians in Iran. It's unbelievable. God is at work. He said, I will build my church. And he's doing it in the places that are least likely the places where if you you can be hanged for being a Christian. And yet these people are coming to Christ in their droves. I read about it just this morning. I, I just let me just finish off because I just I was so this was a headline Christianity exploding in Iran despite efforts of government to stamp it out. It, it, ch- Chafing, chaffing, what's the word, under repressive Islam. Young Iranians are secretly turning to Christ in record numbers. Um, Iran is 25% 14 years or younger. Life is very hard for the average Iranian. There wasn't much being done to reach out to these kids. Iran has the fastest growing evangelical population in the world, estimated at 19.6% by Operation World in 2015. 19.6%. Evangelical Christian. That was news to me. Despite an atrocious human rights record against people who abandon Islam. In fact, the explosive growth has overloaded the religious police. There's seven TV channels or satellite channels in Iran. Six are owned by the government. One is owned by Christians. And they're tailoring programs explicitly for to reach people. And it says, Iran right now is the fastest nation coming to the Lord per capita. It's probably even larger than China. That's because there's a hunger for spiritual things. That's probably because people are so fed up with Islam, they've seen what Islam is doing to them. And uh, it just goes on. But uh, it says, the last one is this. They know they can't stop Christianity from growing. They know the more pressure they put on people, the more people turn to Christ. That's the way God works. Isn't that good? Jesus is on the move. His spirit is on the move. Let's be a life-giving church that brings that same Christ that can save a soul in Iran. Can he not save a soul in Parkmore? Drumgore? 
Do we really believe that Jesus can do that? I do. And I hope you do as well. Let's stand and let's pray.